name's David Vardabedian. Thanks so much for tuning in to Get Real Sobriety. Hope you enjoy this show. Hello, welcome to Podcast Land <laughs> with Tasha Martins here. Yes. Um, we've been interviewing, she's been interviewing me about the book, and so we thought we'd take a break, and I thought it'd be a really good idea to uh, interview her and just kind of hear a little bit about her story. Um, she's been so helpful, um, and, you know, we just released one of the first podcasts in podcasts in the series about the book, which we're getting a lot of great feedback. Um, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about her, um, and introduce her. Um, Natasha Martin is her name. We, everyone calls her Tasha. I don't know. Do some people call you Tasha? Um, Natasha? Um, Usually only when I'm in trouble. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's like me, know. George, David. I don't, if someone calls me George, I know it's the cops or the school or something. Yeah, right? yeah It's exactly. official, right? So Natasha, Tasha Martin, I love her education. I mean, she moved here to California in 2016. She has a BA from the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee in English with a minor in film studies certified in LGBT studies, top 1% of her graduating class, uh, an MA in women and gender studies focused on film media, particularly in regards to race, gender, or sexuality, taught intro to women's studies, humanitarian perspective, and just all kinds of great shit. I know, I look like really good on paper. I know. Well... Who knew I would be such a train wreck in real life? Well, sometimes, not anymore, but... I mean, so here we are. It's um, another beautiful Friday in Santa Barbara. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you got here. How, what, how, what brought you to 12-step stuff and recovery? Um, well, I can tell you, and I think I've mentioned it in other podcasts that we've done, that uh, it was never my intention to end up in 12-step recovery. In fact, I was, like, really antagonistic to it for a really long time. Like, it felt like... That was like one of the biggest insults you could throw at me is tell me I belonged in a in an AA meeting. Right. <laughs> um, but I was a really gnarly heroin addict and an alcoholic and addicted to other all kinds of things. Anything, if you name it, I would love to do it, especially if it was free. Were you the typical? You know, I don't want to say typical, but we hear like, oh, well, I started with pot and then I went to alcohol or I started with alcohol and then I went to pot. You know, was that your story? Yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty much. I I started smoking pot when I was like 14 um, in high school. I was a freshman in high school. I was trying to impress this girl that I liked. And uh, then, I mean, I fell in love with with weed like immediately and that became like all day every day but i you know when you're in high school and you're young like you're like yolo you know it's no problem like oh you're not getting high like come on everybody gets high and i don't know it just felt so normal and uh but i was never really into drinking until later on um i was actually epileptic as a kid so my mom kind of scared me out of drinking because and maybe I'm remembering this wrong. If she's listening and wants to correct me later, uh, sorry, mom. But yeah. I mom's seem not to, here. Yeah, not here now. Uh, but I seem to remember being told that because epilepsy runs in my family, it's genetic, and uh, that I had aunts and uncles who would only have seizures or would be more likely to have seizures when they'd been drinking. And because I was so terrified of that happening. I was like, all right, well, I'm just not going to drink. I'm cool with that. Uh, but, you know, life happens. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I feel comfortable sharing this. But yeah. I, when I was in high school, I was, I was raped. And it was as a direct result of that that I did start drinking. Because I... So you weren't drinking when that happened, right? No, right. no. Right. Um, yeah, I, I was in so much like emotional and existential pain and I w- and I didn't feel like I could share that with anyone um 
at least not the whole truth of it. Like, I mean, I told the, I talked about it, but not in ways that like overtly said, yeah, I was raped and I need help. And that's typical of what happens with sexually abused people, right? Yeah. I mean, and, um, and so, I mean, did you share it with your parents or the dean of the school or whoever? No, um, I no, I didn't. I, I, I mean, obviously, in retrospect, I wish I'd done things differently. But um, at the time, I just couldn't. I and I think that I was in such shock that it happened that I, be I lied to myself for a long time and said, you know, oh, that isn't really what happened. Like, you know, that I played a bigger role in it than I did, and or that you know I was I deserved it or I was asking for it and. Um, and it's taken me a really long time, like up until really like the last like five years or so that I've been able to be like, no, you know, that I know what happened and I, and I don't need to like tell this lie to myself or to others um, just to make me feel better when in fact that lie makes me feel like shit about myself. Right. So no, I didn't tell my parents um, and I definitely didn't tell the school or I had a couple of friends well, yeah, I had a couple of friends that I, I sort of told it, told the truth to. And, you know, in typical high school fashion, that kind of ended up biting me in the ass. Um, just because people knowing your business then use it as a weapon against you. So Especially kids are just so... Like, dude, I know they're terrible. Oh really. Um, and then, you know, social media obviously wasn't as, you know... I mean, social media is fucking can be just horrific. Yeah, I thought it was bad when I was in high school. That was just when we had MySpace. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, and that was horrible enough. I remember getting in like real serious arguments with people about like, oh, you took me out of your top eight on MySpace. Are we not friends? <laughs> you know, and I think about that now and it's like, how ridiculous yeah. does that sound? It's um, powerful. All that stuff is so powerful. and Exactly. Especially if you're a teenager. Yeah. But, you know, one, I, I'm, I'm really sorry that happened. And it's, it's just, you know, we look at, I've read some statistical stuff where people that come into treatment for addiction, alcohol, especially women, it's like eight out of 10, 80% yeah. of women that come into treatment have had some kind of sexual abuse um, as a child or, or, or as a teenager. Um, and 50% of men too, which is a really weird, uh, not weird. I shouldn't even say that. It's like, I just didn't know that, you know, I mean, it was more, I would just say it was more, I thought it was, you know, more, uh, prominent with women, but just even half of the men that walk in have had some kind of sexual abuse. And, and then, and then that you said kind of drove you into drinking, right? Where you were just smoking pot before. Oh, yeah. I mean, and in typical addict, alcoholic fashion, I mean, I never do anything, you know, a little bit. It's always like right out the gate, 60 to, you know, from zero to 100. And um, yeah, I started drinking because I didn't know how to cope with my feelings. And I felt so terrible about myself. And um, that I and I actually remember like having the conscious thought of, you know, being like, 17 years old and thinking, you know, what do, what do grownups do when they're upset? Like, what do they do when they're sad? And like, how do people cope with these kind of feelings? And I thought, well, they drink. I, people drink when they're upset and I'm going to try that. And I don't really care if I have a seizure or I don't care. I, if it makes me feel better, then that's what I would like. And you knew that how? Just from observation or you saw your parents doing it or like, I need yeah. a fucking drink or something, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so ingrained in our culture. Right. Just in like media because neither of my parents are alcoholics by any stretch of the imagination. Um, you know, they're professors and... But they're normal. Like, my, you know, I, both my parents will have a drink with dinner and you know my mom is a fan of her gin and tonics um and but my dad likes his you know his whiskey and his bourbon and whatever but um but they've been able to be like really successful human beings with like very full lives uh and it has never come in the way of their doing that whereas yeah, I really, I think I just saw it in culture. I, I don't think it was any, it, well, I know it wasn't any example that my, my parents or my immediate family 
like was showing to me. Um, but and then you and then you just kind of dove right in and started oh, drinking yeah. a lot. Oh right. Oh my god! Immediately, I think that first time I drank really like drank drank. I drank like an entire like fifth. Wow. And was just absolutely out of my mind drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I loved it. And I, even though, I mean, I've always been like a blackout drinker. I don't know how people don't blackout. I found out that like only, like, I heard a statistic that said like only 15% of people blackout when they drink. And I feel like, who are they asking? Right. They're not asking the alcohol. Yeah. Right? Like if I didn't blackout, like I didn't even really drink. Like. That was a light evening for me. So before, like, you know, even before you started smoking weed, you know, and before the sexual trauma and mm-hmm. all of that. Because I always ask this to people. I mean, how did you feel weird as a child, you know, or do you think that, um, I don't know. I yes. Mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, different, like, I felt like, you know, I had this weird last name, you know, it wasn't Martin, it was Vardabedian. Yeah. And like, you know, I was where Jones and Smith and all of that. And so I, I kind of always felt like this kind of weirdo, you know, but then I, I, you know, I gravitated towards like the counter, you know, the artist community of musicians and surfers and yes. and all of that. And, and I felt comfortable in that situation. So was that something that, you Absolutely. were aware of. Like, yes. Okay. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm originally from Wisconsin, um, which honestly isn't that different from California, um, Santa Barbara. I mean, it's really not like, there's some w- little things that are subtle, but I mean, we, it's America. White bread. Yeah, um, exactly. Right. And um, most of my, like, you know, my formative years of like school, like elementary school and all that. I we lived in a suburb about like right on the edge of Milwaukee and uh I mean it was like we called them North Shore Nancys cuz it was like the North Shore or whatever right. anyway. But it was like the blonde Stepford wife. Yes. And, right, right. and I did not fit that. Right. I, you know, for those cuz this is a podcast, like I'm pale, like right. I couldn't tan if I wanted and I don't want to, but uh you know, and and I'm Greek. So I have like dark hair and dark features I did not blend in um and my parents weren't interested in like PTA meetings and you know going to the bake sale and no not at all I mean I know that I like railroaded my mom into some of that stuff early on and then she was like no I'm never doing that ever again and I totally understand why you know I credit her for that now but uh I just wanted people to like me and I felt like everyone thought I was weird and I had a bigger vocabulary, I think, than a lot of kids my age because my family always talked to me like like a, an adult. Like, they didn't dumb things down for me. And uh, I knew how to speak well. And I don't know if it was other kids were intimidated by that or kids just being kids. Um I think it's probably a combination of a lot of things. But yeah, I just always felt like I was on the outside of things um, socially with with people my age. Um, The school that I went to in the suburbs for elementary school, I came in in like second or third grade and like all the little friend groups I I felt had like already been established. And they were kids whose parents had been friends when they were in school and grown up with each other. And how old were you when you came out? Like, when you realized to yourself, I yeah. mean, not told everybody, but I mean, when you realized that. Um, I mean, this is kind of, okay, this is like a funny story. I, I don't know how old I, I think, well, let's see. When did Titanic come out? Fuck. <laughs> I know, right? right? I mean, okay. In the 90s? In, yeah, it? it was in the 90s. It was like, okay. what, like 1998, maybe? Okay. So I was like nine. And uh, I remember going to see Titanic with my mom. Um, in the movie theater and that scene with Kate Winslet, I was like, oh, all right. Okay, I, d- I did when this. When he was painting her Yes, and she's yeah, all yeah. naked, you right. know? Oh, it was like, I was nine. I'm like, what? Wow, that's you know, hot. This is right. great. <laughs> um, and I remember all my like little friends like loving Leonardo DiCaprio and I put on this sh- like, you know, oh yeah, totally, Leonardo so DiCaprio. Cute, right? Yeah, when in reality, I was like, but Kate Winslet. Right. Uh, and so I think I knew then but I didn't have the language for it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I came out like to everyone else uh, when I was like 12. 
I oh, was so three years later. Right? Yeah. Wow. And uh, and I guess I. I, yeah, I didn't exactly come out as much as I was outed, uh, which was pretty lame, uh, being in middle school, you know, which is like, God, whoever invented middle school, like, that's like invented by the devil. <laughs> They're like, oh, all those kids that are going, starting to go through puberty and are, are, don't know what the hell's going on and can't be nice to each other. Let's just put all them in the same building together. Exactly. Well, it's like, it's so funny because everything's changing. Yeah. Right. You know, so you're changing physically, emotionally, uh, spiritually, you know, it, it went from girls have cooties to like, you know, for me, it was like, oh, wow, there's some interest there. You know, before yeah. oh. I didn't want anything to do with them. Right. Yeah. And yeah, and I agree. I think they should have like, like therapists or counselors on every like, you know, in the end of every hall in every school. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. That, so you were more comfortable and then you started smoking weed and then, you know, now fast forwarding back to the sexual abuse and then into the drinking. And, yeah. And well, and, and looking back on things, you know, even though I think for a long time I looked at each of those events as like separate individual events, right. like the, the common thread running through all of them, I think is like just that, I mean, like it says in the big book, like we've talked about in the other podcast that, um... I just wanted to be accepted and I wanted to like feel okay about myself. And I, I mean, from my earliest of like really cognizant memory, I felt uncomfortable in my own skin and I wasn't really okay with who I was. I felt like I was different. Like we were just saying, and um, you know, I started smoking weed to impress a girl. Like it wasn't cause I really wanted to, I did it cause I thought people would like me. And you liked it. Yeah. And then I was like, Oh, this is pretty right. great. And then it was the same. And then with the drinking, it was just being so uncomfortable that I, I didn't know what to do. And I felt like I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. And I couldn't, I couldn't even really be honest with myself about it. And so I knew that smoking weed made me feel good. So getting out of myself that way felt good. And so I finally just said, you know, fuck it. And I just, and then, yeah, like we said, fast forward to the drinking. And right. um, by that time... Well, anyone listening to the podcast and that happens to them as a 17-year-old person, yeah. right? Or even later? Anytime, yeah. Would, what, I mean, would you, what, now looking, like you said, in retrospect, I would have done something different. Um, would you suggest to, you know, I, I guess that's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. an out in podcast land, what, someone listening that can't, share that or talk to someone? Is there anything that you would share with them to? I mean, you got to talk to someone because it's, if you keep that toxic shit inside yourself, it, it comes out in other ways. And I mean, this is so cliche and I think we've said in here before, like it's those cliche, stupid little lines that we hate hearing that are often the truest and that are the really the most helpful at the end of the day. But like it's to anyone that's listening that has, you know, gone through some kind of, you know, sexual violence, sexual assault, rape, it's not your fucking fault. You know, even if you think it was, even if you have every reason to be like, no, you know, it isn't really them or no, it's not your fault. Like even if you'd started off and you thought, okay, I want this, and then in the middle, you decide, no, I don't, then you have every right to say, I, I don't want this anymore. And the other person should listen to you. No matter what. Yeah. Right. Like, I know this sounds probably like an after-school special right now, but like, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, I didn't know that. And, I, and my parents were, had very open conversations with my sister and myself about these issues growing up. I knew, you know, no means no, and... Um, that I could and should have been able to talk to them about it. And, and yet, there I was, and I felt like I couldn't. Um, I mean, even, I mean, the nice thing about the internet being so proliferated right now in this day and age, you know, uh, you can find someone to talk to that, like, if you're really that freaked out about someone finding out or, or whatever it is, like, they have all kinds of like therapy that you can get online where it's like, so you don't ever really have to meet them or see them or even talk to them ever again. Like even if you have to like write it down on a piece of paper and burn it afterwards. Right. 
Yeah, because I even, I know, you know, I know I don't want to name them, but, so, you know, some people that are close to me that are doing therapy online that's provided through their companies. And so there is something out there. And so, okay, now you're, and that's great information. Um, now you're, you're drinking, you're 17, 18 years old, mm-hmm. right? And then what's the you know evolution or how did it evolve how did into it, right? or devolve yeah, really or devolve, um, right? well i mean i went you're to college you're still in milwaukee at this place right? oh yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah wisconsin and i think too that it's important i mean i know that the nice thing about podcasts is that like people are listening from all over the world right, right. um and so if you're if you're from a place like the midwest that or you know that has a very uh long history of especially like the making of alcohol like Milwaukee's really known for its beers you know Pabst Miller Schlitz the list goes on um a certain kind of reckless drinking is just part of the culture accepted oh yeah so like things I've always said like what would be considered like heavy alcoholic drinking in California is just like a Tuesday night in Milwaukee and that it really is like, and that's off, but that's how I justified my drinking to myself for years. Cause I thought, you know, oh my God, I know so many people that are way worse than I am. There's no way that I have a problem. Look at that asshole over there, you know? Um, but no, I mean, I went to college and that in and of itself, I think for most people, most, you know, 18 year olds, even just the graduating from high school and having your, you know, quote unquote autonomy, like, the, the freedom that comes with that, I mean, yeah, it was like a rager all the time. And were there drugs? Is that where the drugs were introduced? At that? I mean, they were around. They were definitely around. Um, I mean, that's like where I started, uh, like, here and there, like, dabbling and, you know, doing Adderall and stuff for before finals and to do write term papers. But that was really here and there. I mean, I was scared out of doing drugs. I mean, it's like... Not, I just, I was so socially insecure that in my mind, I always did have that voice like, what if you have a seizure? You know, what if that happens? And it wasn't, but it was never about my personal safety. That's what I always have to, I have to laugh at myself for, is that it wasn't like, oh no, something might happen to me in a way that would harm me because I would ingest too much of something and I would have a seizure. It was always, I'm going to be with a bunch of people and I'm going to have a seizure and I'm going to embarrass the shit out of myself. Like, I don't want to be that girl at the party that then everything has to stop and I'm killing everyone's buzz and everyone's having a good time and then, oh no, Tasha has to go to the emergency room. Some right, so like, it's like, oh my God, I want to be a people pleaser. I don't want to yes. have a fucking seizure. Right? It's so, but it really was. Like that no, was the it. impetus behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and yes, yeah, so they were around. I actually used to babysit my friends all the time when they would roll and do ecstasy and stuff. Like we would have, they would have the ecstasy parties at my house and I would just be hanging out getting wasted. I don't know how much of a good babysitter I really was at the end of the night. And, uh, but, yeah, I was just too scared of embarrassing myself. And so you went throughout your college years not really getting into opiates and that. When did that come along? That came along the summer in between uh, my undergrad and my graduate degree. Um, and I guess it wasn't a summer. It was like a semester because I graduated with my undergrad in the winter. So I graduated in December and then I wasn't starting grad school until the following September. And how old were you then? 23. Okay. And I mean, it, I feel like it's important to add that you know, throughout this whole time span that we've been talking about, like these kind of formative years of teenagehood um, and early adulthood, like I was in this long-term relationship with a woman that I had had this on again off again thing for about 10 years uh we met when i was 15 ish um and she was significantly older than me so you know i mean that's obviously that's a whole separate issue but um you know she was like nine years older than me 
And my parents were obviously not cool with that. And it was something that I hid from them. Uh, but we had had this ongoing thing that was so tumultu- tumultuous toxic and toxic. Right. Um, but shockingly, she didn't really drink or do drugs. Um, but I, we were just so codependent. It was like not okay. And she, and that that time frame, right after I graduated from college, um, it just got worse. And I don't know exactly why. I think it might have been one of those situations where I was like outgrowing her in like emotional and spiritual ways. Like at, when I was fourteen, it was fine, or fifteen, I, it was fine because that's. I mean, you know, that's kind of like where she was at, and like she could relate to me on that level. Um, but then as like a 22, 23 year old woman. Well, emotionally, you know, even if you're drinking or using, you're still in a different place. Then. Yeah. yeah. So, but that relationship finally dissolved, uh, permanently. And I did, I had this like, basically like a crisis of identity. And I, cause I, the only future I'd ever really be, been able to envision for myself was in this relationship. And, um, I, I didn't know who I was and I didn't know what I wanted. I mean, I had made this commitment to go to grad school, so I knew I was going to do that because I'm a people pleaser. And, uh, and I had nothing else planned, uh, but I, the drinking got really severe. Um, my friends would have to like come over and like force me to leave the house to do anything. I was just drunk all the time. Um, but still getting good grades. I mean, you're all. I know. Your, Isn't that so, wild? So awesome. I hear those stories. I just wasn't that person, right? Yeah, I uh, I, I can't explain that. Uh, I really can't. I, genetics, I guess. Right? I guess, and I think that like I wanted my my parents' approval so badly that I knew that they would appreciate me doing well in school and. I was learning about interesting things and I found that I was pretty good at like, I could, you know, I could write a paper about anything. I could talk about whatever and that served me well. So I could get good grades and kind of bullshit it. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, it's funny cause it turns out I had my parents approval the whole time. Um, but I just didn't want them to know how much I was hurting on the inside and like what a mess I felt I really was, which then became a self-fulfilling prophecy of, oh, you really are a mess. But so I was leading this double life that it couldn't go, it, it couldn't end well either way. But during that time when my, my ex and I had broken up, um, my friend, who's still my friend to this day, she took me to a concert and, thinking that would cheer me up, and it did. Uh, but I ended up meeting this other woman uh, at that concert who, as it turns out, was a heroin addict. And I was very naive, and I didn't know what that looked like, what that, you know, in another person. How did you know that she was a heroin addict? Oh, well, I didn't until I caught her with, you know, needles. And she like sent me on some weird wild goose chase one day. And she was like too sick, you know, to, she had, you know, she had the flu or whatever. And was like, oh, can you just go to this guy's house and pick this thing up for me? And of course, because I'm nosy, I was not about to like pick up some weird thing (laughs) and not look. And so I, you know, I was like, oh, okay. And then it shocked me, but like it, it was like all the pieces came together and I'm like, oh, makes so much sense now. Um, but yeah. Were you she- intrigued? I mean, you know, cause some people are like, I, they're, I, you know, even I know people to this day that never like inject heroin or anything. And they oh, were yeah. just like, I'll smoke it though, you know? Yeah. And, and so what was like the, you the know, progression? tipping point? No, like when you said, fuck it, I'll do this. Yeah. Um, well, grad school is really stressful. <laughs> And uh, I was still a wreck from my ex leaving me. And, uh, that, and I, even though I was kind of in this like weird relationship with this other woman at this point, um, I was super stressed out being in school with all these really heavy demands and expectations. 
And I had that imposter syndrome thing going on that I think a lot of people suffer from in graduate school and just in life, like where you feel like, oh God, if they only knew who I really am, what a mess I really am, they would never have, you know, given me the honor of going to this school or given me a scholarship or whatever it is, you know, or giving me this job if it's a job. Um, And so I already felt like shit about myself. And then I was within, I was in this relationship with this chick who treated me like shit. And I took it because I think I felt like that's what I deserved. And she would, she had like prescription painkiller, like Percocets and would offer them to me from time to time when I would get really stressed out. And I'd always said no and because I was too freaked out. And then eventually I think I'd had a really bad day at school and uh, probably at work. I probably maybe got into a fight with my, one of my parents. Who knows? It, some, it was just like a perfect storm. And she offered me one of her painkillers and I said yes. And that was awesome. And I like immediately loved it. And I was like, God, I've been wasting all my time drinking all these years. Who yeah, knew? I can take a little pill, right? And, oh, God. Yeah. Like, yeah, it was great. But within like two or three months, I had, you know, like a $200 a day habit. Of, oh, so you went from Percocets to? Heroin. Heroin. Yeah, a short-lived because I'm, I'm, I was a broke bitch and uh, could not afford that dollar a milligram thing. So uh, then, yeah, I mean, and by that point, she had sent me on that wild goose chase for the dope, and I was like, oh, you're holding out on me. Right. And so I said, I'm like, well, I want, I want that, you know? Like, that is cheaper, and I would like that, please. And so... She wouldn't, like, show me how to shoot up or anything. But, and this is, like, powder heroin that they have in the Midwest. It's not the black tar that we have here. So I just started snorting it. And that worked for a couple of months until it didn't. And, again, it was, like, up to $200 a day. I could not afford it. And eventually, I'm pretty sure I, like, threw a tantrum about it to her. I was like, you're either going to show me how to do this with a, with a needle, or I'm going to find somebody who will. Which was like a totally empty threat. Because right. who the hell would I have called? You know, she was like <laughs> the only person I knew that did this. And, but so, but she did. And it was love at first injection, basically. I, I've said before uh, that I felt like, and I remember that first shot, that I remember thinking like, I found God or something. Like I, I found all the the answers to all the questions that I felt like I ever had, and everything felt like I was good in the world. And it's the problem because I'm, you know, an ex heroin addict as well. Is that it's finite? Yeah. I mean, I get that. You know, I was like, fuck. I remember, like, yeah, it is. It's every physical, emotional, spiritual you know, any kind of pain that you have or issue goes away, you know? But then it's like, oh, I have to keep doing this and then it becomes problematic. Yeah, right. And then, yeah, and then it's just more. And then you're like, oh, 10 years just went by or five years just went by, you know, so. I know, I feel like I fell into like a black hole. I mean, kind of literally and came out the other side 30 years old. It's like, what? Where did my 20s go? It's so funny. It's like, people, well, what happened? It's like, well, you know when you get off the freeway and then you're like, oh, there's no... How do you get back on the freeway? And then <laughs> yeah. you're stuck in some city for the next 10 years. So, you know, yeah. It's like, oh, I couldn't get back on the freeway and I just lost myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I lost myself for a little bit. And- so what was your first attempt at sobriety or, you know, getting clean? Um... Well, in the, you know, eight-year ride I took with our friend Heroin, I had, I mean, there was, I tried many times to stop using because I knew that it was terrible and I was hurting myself and that uh, my life was falling apart. But, yeah, I just, I could, I mean, I would try to do it with Suboxone and I just couldn't manage that. It was like, 
it still felt like life sucked all the time. Did you ever check into like a rehab or did your parents know at this time? And like, Oh, no. Right. They, so, they, right. My parents did not know I was a heroin addict until two weeks before we were moving to California. Oh, wow. So that's like a recent revelation to them. Like within, and that's not in that. When did you move to California? In 2016. 2016 right. So four, four years, years ago. ago. Yeah. Yeah. I know my poor parents. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and now, yeah, and and you have eight months. Mm-hmm. Eight months. Yeah. Well, eight months next week. Yeah. Right. So, in 2016. Yeah. Did you do any rehabs out here or anything like that? No. Um. I really believed. I didn't need that. I and I was still really antagonistic to twelve step at that point. Um, I believed I could just detox myself. And How did you hear about like? Oh, there's meetings. You could, did someone say that to you? Yeah, my mom. Okay, she was like, "You need to get yourself to an AA meeting or something because you are this is out of control." Right. <laughs> and I finally, at that point, you know, I yeah, I was like, okay. I'm going to go. And I actually, in this building, I went to my first oh, wow. my first meeting. Um, it was a nooner. I think so many people's first AA meetings are nooners. Yeah. Like, you know, you're an alcoholic. You don't have a job. It's the middle of the day. You don't got anything to do. So, uh, yeah, I went to my first meeting, and I, I remember thinking, like, oh, wow, I, like, really relate to all this. That's crazy. It's like they're reading my mind. But, uh, but I mean, it wasn't enough to keep me sober, I, I, I've gone in and out so much over the last four years. I'm, I just, I think I just, I couldn't get out of my own damn way. Like, I wish that I could go back, you know, and shake my former self and be like, snap out of it, you know? Um, And what was the, what, what were you like, what was the hesitation about? The God thing. Yeah. I, I, there was like no way I, I, I really thought, like, you know, AA is a Christian organization. I'm not on board with that. I don't, I didn't understand, like, the whole giving up your will thing. I thought that was, like, kind of cultish and not in the ways that I think are cool. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, it just, it seemed like a big megachurch evangelical thing. So... In those in those four years, like until now, this eight month period, it was just in and out, in and out, sober living, no real like thirty day rehabs or anything like that. No, I went, I did the like a two week detox thing once, um, and that I had a great experience doing that, um, but it just didn't stick. It wasn't enough time. For me to was like, that here, like Project Recovery or yeah. something? Okay. Yeah, it was while it was still the two-week program. Right. And that was like three years ago, something like that. And I, but no, I never did the formal treatment thing. And I think it isn't, I mean, yes, it was because I was headstrong and I thought, oh, you don't need that. You know, you, you know you're better than that. You don't need to go to rehab. And then what was the, you know, so what was the turning point for this time? That's what I think is kind of interesting. Like, it boggles my mind sometimes that, like, I don't really know. Um, I I think, for me, I finally just, I tried my way so many times. And I got, I still got loaded every single time. Like, my best thinking got me back in sober living, you know, back just face to the concrete every time even when I didn't think that's what I was doing like I didn't think that my actions were leading me closer and closer to a relapse like I didn't think that at all and so you just said fuck it I I'm gonna try this yeah I finally was like you know what I'm just gonna sit down and shut the fuck up and stop thinking that I know what's best for me because I clearly don't like whatever my sponsor tells me to do I'm just gonna do it like, I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to lie and say I did it. And, and then, you know, and then not do it. And, um, because I, 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 was out of, I was out of answers. Like, I was out of like, oh, but maybe if I did this differently. Or like, oh, well, as soon as I'm out of, you know, sober living, I'm going to smoke weed. 
And oh, the, so you, yeah, the reservations people have. Yes, mm-hmm. and I, I definitely had. That was my biggest one because I was always like, oh well, you know, we never hurt anyone. No one's ever had died of an overdose from marijuana. And I don't want to sound like a lame right now because, like, I love weed. I love it. It's great. If you love weed, I'm good for you. You know, and and if that works for you, more power to you. Yeah, keep coming back, and you know, don't you know, just get work. Try to work the program on weed or something. Yeah, like. just do what you got to do. Like so. But what's interesting to me is that, and it's just a common thread of everyone, including myself, is like when I put the work in, yeah. something different happened, you know, and that's what we talk about. We talk about my book. Yeah. We talk about and and you know, just the program in general is that it's not like an analysis. It's not some, you know, therapeutic breakthrough. It's like do the fucking work and yeah. stop overthinking it. And and that and you're a great example of that, right? You just started put doing the work, right? Yeah, and and it's funny because, like I said, I really thought I was doing it before, and I but I was so miserable, and I and I really was like, what am I not doing? It's like, oh, maybe you're not like being honest with your sponsor. Maybe you're not being honest with yourself. You know, it's that like maybe I'm the problem. You know. When you did you write an inventory those times before, or just go through the oh, process? Oh yes. Okay. Oh my God, my poor the last the sponsor I had before this last time. You know, bless her heart. We I wrote a fourth step that was like two hundred names on the resentments. Oh my God, because because I was like, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't this working? Why do I keep relapsing? And so they were like, you know, we fearless and thorough. You know, thorough inventory. If you're, Uh, So I literally like racked my brain and wrote down like every single resentment like I've ever had in my whole life. And it took us like a month to go over it. Wow. Like four different meetings. And then what's the difference then? What was, I mean, you were putting in the work, but you you don't think you were being honest? No, not really because I had these reservations, first of all, that I was like, well, I'm definitely going to smoke weed. Like, you can't tell me that that's a bad idea. That was my I, that was my attitude about it. And that was gone this last time. Oh yeah, because okay. that's how this last relapse started. Because right. I did exactly that. I got out of sober living. I I like fixed my life on the outside enough that uh, I got my shit together. I got a little place um, that you know my own little apartment slash. Well, I was renting a room in a same difference, and things were coming together, but. I started smoking weed you immediately. Had that immediately, yeah. like same day that I moved out. Right. Like I was chomping at the bit. And it isn't that like, oh, in the next day, you know, I had a needle in my arm. It was no, but it was immediately that shift in perception where I I got that that head change and I just wanted more. I needed to be stoned all day long. It became I needed to like go smoke weed on my break at work. So then I'm stoned at work and I smell like weed. Like it's, that's not cool, you know? And people who had known me at this job for at that time, like two years, then all of a sudden it's like, what is happening? You know, like, and it, that became my priority. And I wasn't, I wasn't hanging out with my friends who were sober because I didn't feel like I could be honest about smoking weed. And it was just this, uh, snowball effect of like I didn't go to my meetings because I felt like a fraud in the meetings and then one thing you know happened one thing after another and then there I am at the bar drinking right. and then drinking at the bar telling myself I'm being social I'm learning to be a normal person again turns into me drinking a, a whole bottle of vodka in my bedroom by myself turns into a couple you know like a couple weeks later being drunk being like you know what fuck it I'm, I'm going to call the connect. Like, I've already fucked everything off. And how did you get back from that one? <laughs> um, well, uh, I went into meth psychosis again, which happens to me, I've learned. And uh, I thought that there was someone in my mattress. I hadn't slept for many days. And I called my mother and like very like sheepishly 
told her, so I think someone's in my mattress and I haven't been able to sleep. <laughs> and she was like, oh, wow, you know, like, oh, well, come over, come over to our house. There's nobody in our mattresses. You can I get lo- some sleep. I love your mom. Dude, she, I know, she's a badass. <laughs> um, and then, of course, like, I get there and it's like, all right, you need to call somebody from AA that I know is sober, that you're not bullshitting me about, and we need to get you some help. <laughs> right on. So that was good. Um, I mean, what I think a big part... Did you go back into sober living then? After, well, my mom and a really good friend of mine, um, Sarah, who we know, yes. uh, got, helped me get into the, what Project Recovery is now, which is a, like a, a residential, right. longer, like a real treatment program. So I was there for 45 days. And it saved my life. Like, I'm so grateful that I somehow surrendered in that time to just doing what was asked of me. So, so okay, now, and you're like, fuck it, I'm going to just do what I'm told, and you have a new sponsor. Did you go through the whole process again of, like, you know, steps one, two, three, and then writing another fearless and thorough, you know, moral yes. and, and inventory? And- oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's it was necessary. I mean, there have been times, like, when I, you know, had a slip and I was, you know, out for, like, a couple of days that I would always be so pissed, like, oh, I have to restart my steps. Oh. Um, in retrospect, it's like, well, clearly something wasn't working, right. you know? But this time around, yeah, I mean, and I, I, my last relapse was... It lasted almost a year. It was pretty gnarly. And uh, I, I felt like I just wanted to start fresh. I wanted to start from the beginning. I loved my previous sponsor, um, and it was totally not her. Um, I just, like I said, I wanted like a whole new perspective on things. And uh, so, yeah, I started at the at step one. And uh, luckily, my experience in, in that treatment center, I mean, I feel like I had worked step one really thoroughly. Like, I had... No reservations. No reservations okay. at all. And I think that one of the, the, the major turning points for me in this round of sobriety was that when I came in, I mean, I was, I was thoroughly beaten. Like, I was beaten down. But I think I had lost a certain kind of, uh, like, healthy fear that we get when we're out there using. Um, you know, because, like, you should be afraid of dying. That's, like, a, that's a natural human, I mean, that's a natural, an, natural animal instinct, is to be afraid of dying. And yet, I would lost that in, in this last relapse. I didn't care I didn't. I wasn't afraid of dying. I wasn't afraid of someone assaulting me. I wasn't afraid of someone robbing me or doing something terrible because it had all happened, and it, not just in that relapse, but in all of the ones before that. I felt like there is nothing that life can throw at me that is going to phase me now. Like, bring it on. Right. Like, there's nothing worse out there than what I'm doing to myself. Mm-hmm. And just from my observation, I you know knowing you in the last, I don't know, four or five months, it's, I think, I, I just see you thriving now in sobriety and clean time and recovery, whatever we want to yeah, whatever language. It. Um, it just seems that there's, you know, a spark and enthusiasm about it. Um, and, you know, I mean, now you've got this cool job and, you know, you're still at the sober living and, and you're yeah. helping other people and, um, what would, if, you know, someone's listening to this podcast and they're struggling, you know, like you struggled before, it was like, I just can't give it up, you know? Yeah. What, is there anything that you would like, like to say to, out to podcast land, people struggling? <laughs> you know? I mean, just hold on. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're loaded right now and you want to stop and you can't, um, you can. Don't let anyone else be the author of your story. You know, you, you, this is the only life that we get, that we're aware of. And um, it doesn't have to be shit. You're not, you're not a piece of shit. Whoever told you that, they suck, man. Right. And people care. 
that's, you know, I would tell myself that I was all alone and that no one cared and that I had nothing to contribute to the world. And it isn't, you know, it isn't just the program, but like being clear headed and sober, like there are a lot of people out there that care. And just for me, I, I, I just needed to get out of my own way. Stop overthinking it. It's not that comp like just stay in today. Today, everything's all right. That's really good advice. I'm so happy that you did this. And I think it's a lot, you know, even someone listening to this and there's a big part of the identification, yeah. you know, it's, it's it, that someone, it's like the guy that told me, you can't just write a theory about the 12 steps and not add your life into it. Yeah. People need to connect with you. And that's part of speaker meetings and doing all of that. And, and that's where I think this is really helpful. So thank you. I love you. I love you too. And it's just, you know, we aren't alone and we're connected. And, and we, that's, you know, one of the main things is that service to others, you know. Yeah. Right? Like you can have a life that is beyond your wildest dreams. Like I never thought I would be able to be happy on a consistent basis ever. And like I am now. And I don't want that to sound like, you know, oh, I was an addict and now I'm not, right. like Pax Prentice or whatever. But just listen to what other people have to say, man. They're mm. not, that was what was amazing. They're not bullshit. They never bullshitted me. Yeah. If I just, just do the next indicated right thing. If you don't know what the right thing is, you definitely know what the wrong thing is. Exactly. Right. <laughs> don't do that. Ask someone. Yeah, ask somebody else that you trust. So here's the fire round. I'm going to give you like questions. Oh, one word or whatever you think. Oh, I love right? it. Okay. That'll be hard for me, but let's do it. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Both of us. Um, so what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say spirituality? Connection. If you could have anything today, what would that be? Oh my God. A new car. Okay. That was more than one word. If you could give anything today, what would that be? M money to my family. What do you know for sure? Life is good. Awesome. Thank you for being here. And uh, good night, podcast land. Yes, good night, good day, whatever time zone. We'll see you later. I'd like to thank all the people that are involved in making this happen. Gerald Jones for producing and engineering this podcast. He's absolutely brilliant. Follow him on Instagram at Sonia. HTML. His music is amazing. Maya Grace for her hair and makeup. I know what you're saying. This is a podcast. Why do you have hair and makeup? We just want to look awesome for each other. See you next time.